Amen. You can be seated. Glad you're with us this morning here at Hope Church. Very exciting to see so many of you all together. Um, And it's kind of exciting because of what we're talking about today. So we're talking about leaping for joy. That's the name of our sermon series. And it's because if you read through the Gospels and the teaching of Christ, he's very concerned with us experiencing joy. There's supposed to be something in Christianity that feels real nice. And yet, I will say... It feels somewhat counterintuitive. I don't know that a promise of joy is the experience that a lot of people have in the faith. If you're doing this right, it may be that your life has been filled not with all of this incredible like victory, health, and wealth, but you might instead be experiencing a lot of hunger. You might be poor, and you might be marginalized. I think that Christianity feels that way in the world. I don't know. Maybe you walk around and feel like you're just winning because you're a Christian. But in general, we are poor. You guys have been very generous. God has been incredibly generous, and yet we're not even sniffing buying a building on the east side of town. I don't know if you've looked at prices. We're not even close. We're not as maybe wealthy as we think. We are making ourselves hungry. You talk about being hungry. We're making ourselves hungry. We're doing a fasting month. I don't know how many of us in Hope Church are just like go without food. I don't know. If that is you, please let us know. We want to help you out. But in general... We make ourselves hungry through fasting. I don't know if you've ever done a fast before. We're talking about fasting at Hope Church over the month of February because Jesus teaches us to fast because there are unlimited, beautiful things within the world of that discipline. And it's overlooked by most people because because it's fasting. Why, Why would you want to voluntarily not eat when you could eat? It's the best part of every day. Why would you not be eating a big lunch? Well, okay, because... There's something to this. There's a a way in which the physical hunger points to, helps you underline in your own heart and mind the reality that there's something not yet about our faith. That there's something in the world when you look out and see it that's that's sort of not yet about our faith. We talk about being poor, we talk about being hungry, we can talk about being marginalized. Maybe there have been times in history where Christianity was winning. But if you go to like the Middle Ages when Christianity was in charge, I I don't know theologically if you just jumped into that Christianity how much of it would be very recognizable. Maybe there was a time in the United States where Christians were in charge of everything, but it doesn't feel that way now. I know personally, uh, Hope Church has never been consulted about the workings of, of what goes on in Utah. I mean, nobody at the Capitol has ever been talking about things within the state and said, wait, what will Hope Church think about this? <laughs> we're, not in that, we're not in that consideration. Why? Well, you know, guys, we really are marginal. We're on the side, we're looking in. Now, if that's true, how does that make you feel? I don't know. I mean, if you think about it, the the psalmist leads us in this a little bit. The the guy that was writing the psalm, Psalm 73, was thinking about the people around him who did not follow the Lord and thinking about himself who did. And his experience was very painful 
And their experience seemed really pleasurable. He talked about them as being, <laughs> I really like this phrase. He talked about them as being fat and sleek. How many of you are fat and sleek this morning? Most of us, if we got up feeling fat and kind of greased up to make sure our skin didn't feel dry, didn't look at ourselves in the mirror and go, wow. <laughs> I'm going to have to tuck this in so people at church are not uh, like jealous of me. But the psalmist, when he saw people in the ancient world that had plenty, that had oil to spare, that they were able to, to anoint themselves on a daily basis and have skin that was vibrant and healthy, not burned by the sun. He looked at him and he felt jealousy. It says in Psalm 73, verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel a little bit cheated? You kind of thought Christianity was going to lead you from like victory to victory, and here you are. Maybe do you ever feel a little bit embarrassed of your faith? I'm talking about evangelism. Evangelism is always difficult to tell somebody else about why you love Jesus and why they should follow Jesus. That's always slightly difficult. It's slightly uh, awkward. But are you ever embarrassed about your faith? Man, I, I want you to just feel this for a second because if it's there, I want to address it. And I want to address it the way that Jesus does because he actually takes this experience of being on the bottom and flips it all the way over. And he does it in a really famous way. In Matthew and in Luke, we have these things called Beatitudes. And they're called that, and we're going to just keep referencing this. Whenever theologians name things, they always name it real weird. But Beatitude just means blessings. The things that, that make someone blessed or the, the indications of blessing. And so in Matthew, you have the blessed are the, and he talks about blessed are the meek or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, in Luke, you get something similar because Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He preached sermons in lots of different places. And as he was preaching, he probably said similar things to lots of different groups. And Matthew records part of it and Luke records part of it. Luke records a very similar thing to Matthew. He says in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 23, and this is going to be our main text for today. So if you have a copy of the scripture and you want to kind of stay here, this is a good spot. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20, Jesus says he, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Title of the series. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers also did to the prophets. Okay, that sounds bananas. Before you get too uh, credulous about it or incredulous, I don't know which one's which. Think about how Jesus lived out what he said here. Luke, as he's writing this whole chapter, gives us a lot of indications that Jesus did live out what he's saying here. He actually lived in his ministry, had a lot of opposition against him. 
This is what it says in the chapter. In the first sort of story of Luke chapter 6, we have Jesus walking through a field with his disciples on the Sabbath, and his disciples are plucking little heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and then eating the kernels. They're not stealing a whole bunch of grain. It wasn't a theft problem. But some Pharisees, some religious leaders, saw them doing that and said, that's harvesting. They are harvesting on the Sabbath. A pax upon you. You know, like they, 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 they condemned Jesus and his disciples for eating a little bit of snacks on the Sabbath. Because technically they were taking grain from like standing grain and they were plucking it. It was kind of like a harvest. Well, Jesus, in that opposition, responds. He says to them, they look at him and say, you can't do that. And Jesus looks back at them and says that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He tells them that he's in charge of the Sabbath and that he's absolutely able, not only to do that himself, but to allow his disciples to do that. But it is interesting because the way that he responds to them also makes it clear that while he considers the Pharisees to be nitpicking in this instance... He doesn't consider their desire for holiness to be wrong. He, desires, he sees their hypocrisy as wrong, but he sees their holiness as a great thing. In Matthew 23, so we're jumping over to the other gospel and towards later in his ministry, Jesus is teaching on this. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Moses, the ancient Jew that gave the law. God gave the law through Moses. So they sit on the seat of Moses, meaning that they are the ones who are now helping to teach and interpret the law that we have in the Old Testament. So, because they sit on Moses' seat, do and observe whatever they tell you. Even some of these crazy Sabbath laws. But don't do the works that they do. For they preach, but they don't practice. They, they tie up heavy burdens that are really hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Listen, has that ever been your experience? We talk about religion. There are times when you, you get around religious people, and they give you big burdens to carry. They tell you about what your life should look like. And that should is going to involve lots of different rules covering lots of different sides or angles of your life. And as you keep hearing them talk, you keep thinking, this is just not possible. And maybe, you know, somebody kind will get behind the, the curtain a little bit and tell you like, hey, it's okay. Nobody's able to do this real well. Just kind of hide some of the stuff you can't do and do the best you can. But you know that what they mean when they say that is that you've still lost you still carry a heavy weight of guilt. And maybe it sort of metastasizes into shame and becomes your identity. Jesus, as he's listening to these, or these uh, Pharisees make the kind of comments that they're making, he teaches later in his ministry, that we should pursue the kind of holiness that they talk about. That maybe even in their hypocrisy, they're pointing out good things that you could try to do that would help you in your passionate pursuit of being as holy as possible. But if you're going to do that, do what they say, but don't do how they do it. Because they're hypocrites. He had to point out even the religious leaders were not leading people to the Lord. He was under friendly fire. We're talking about opposition. He was getting opposition from the people who should have been his biggest supporters. They should have been uh, preparing the way for him. There should have been a whole legion of John the Baptists helping everybody be ready for when the Savior came. But instead, there's only one John the Baptist and all of these religious leaders who are now in opposition to Jesus. So, we go on. 
You have the next story in Luke chapter 6. Jesus preaching in the synagogue and a man with a withered hand was there. He had a messed up hand. I don't know how it was messed up. It was withered. But Jesus healed the guy on the Sabbath. Now the Pharisees heard, saw this happen and said, you can't do that. What? They said you can't heal on the Sabbath. You can't do work on the Sabbath. All he did was speak and the guy's hand worked. All the guy did was like stretch out his hand. There's no way that speaking or stretching out your hand broke the Sabbath. But they were so opposed to Jesus that they even saw that as a reason to persecute him. Why? Well, look at what their hearts feel about Jesus. It says in Luke chapter 6, verse 11, they, meaning the religious leaders, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Are you understanding how things are going for Jesus in his ministry? <laughs> if I describe our ministry as marginalized, if I describe our ministry as poor, if I describe our ministry as hungry, how much more the example we have from our Lord? As he was going about and doing what he was supposed to do, the ones that were the religious leaders were opposed to him so forcefully that they are filled with fury and disgust with one another. It was an item in their meeting. How they might take care of this Jesus fella. And if you're with us, last week in Luke chapter 6, what we're talking about today, this is the second sermon we have from Jesus. The first sermon in Luke that we have from Jesus, we talked about last week. And if you remember, after he preached it, the people who heard it wanted to push him off a cliff. How are things going for Jesus in the sermon department? <laughs> he is finding incredible opposition. Then we get the disciples that he chose. Oh my gosh, if he was trying to gain influence in the world, he didn't pick the right disciples. Who did he pick? Well, he first, he picked a bunch of fishermen. Fishermen, meaning blue-collar guys, if they were raised Jewish, would have been raised in an educational system that weeded out people at the age of 10. At the age of 10, if you weren't keeping up with the kind of scholastic work that they had in understanding the law of Moses, you weren't a promising enough disciple. At the age of 10, they'd say you know what, you're in the bottom half, get out of here. Go, go work with your dad, you're not going to be a rabbi. And then, at the age of 17, if you made the cut at the age of 10, at the age of 17, they'd have another cut. At the age of 17, if you had made it through all of that religious education, the people who were the itinerant teachers, the people who were in positions as the religious leaders, would look out and they would take a couple of the best of the best to be their disciples or their followers. And if you didn't get picked... Then you had to go back to the blue-collar work. You had to go back to whatever the family business was. If Jesus chose fishermen, he chose men who had flunked out. They had already been disregarded by the religious leaders that were opposing Jesus throughout the whole chapter. They weren't the educated. They were the guys that had to go back and work in dad's boat because they didn't make the cut. He also chose zealots. Zealots were Jews who were violently committed to throwing off the yoke of the Roman Empire. The Jewish people at that time were under the, the government of, the, the Roman Empire was in charge of the Jewish people. And these guys were so against it that they were willing to fight and violently overthrow Rome. I don't know, not necessarily a guy I want in the room. You don't usually hear that somebody talk about somebody being militant and think like, fun. <laughs> oh, you're not a Christian. You're a militant Christian. Great. Come be part of the leadership team. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you're into that. 
but he, he picked a zealot and he picked a tax collector. You're talking about the most unpopular people. These were Jews who used the Roman authority, counter to the zealot, who used the Roman authority in order to rob their fellow Jews. Oh my gosh, least popular guy on the train. And then it says at the end of his list of disciples that he chose Judas. He even chose a traitor. You can't do that. But he did. So how did such an opposed guy sit down to teach and have crowds of people there to hear him? Well, even though he was doing these things and saying these things, he was also healing people and casting out demons. And there were great crowds of people that came to him with the desire to have themselves healed or to have the demons cast out. What I mean by that is that they came to Jesus with a hope that he would make their lives right then better. That he'd help them get a little fat and get a little sleeker. And when they came to him, listen to what he taught. So here, one more time. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said... Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. What are we talking about? <laughs> what? How does this work? How do you leap for joy when somebody spits at you because you're a follower of Christ? I, I want to understand this. And the way to understand it, I think, is to follow exactly what Jesus said there. He said, are you poor? Do you give what you have so that other people can hear more about who Jesus is? We just did that Lottie Moon offering. Did you take something that you wanted, say no to it, and then use the money you would have done so that other people could hear the gospel? I hope you did. If you keep hanging out with Hope Church, we're going to try and lead you that way. Not to do it because you're guilty, but to do it because you're joyful. If you do, there's going to be a point where you're poor. And maybe you're not, didn't, you're not poor because you gave it all away. Maybe you're just poor because things aren't working so great. Because it's Utah and living here is just expensive. You're trying to have a house. How do you have a house in Utah? Well, if you're poor, and if you're poor because you're here for the kingdom, Jesus says, man, your home's not yet. <laughs> you shall have a home where you walk on streets of gold through gates carved from a single pearl. <laughs> you want to talk about wealth? You may not be wealthy yet. Jesus died with nothing but the clothes on his back. And yet... You will be wealthy. He said, are you hungry now? Are, are you leaving food behind as you long for a total change of the world and the people that are hurting around you? If so, one day you will eat at the table of God in his presence filled with a perfect peace. <laughs> are you weeping now? Do you see what is broken in this world? Do you care enough about people to see the systems that just objectify, rob, and rape people in this world? And are you just crushed by it? Your, your pillows should be wet sometimes. Because as you go to sleep and the, the things you saw that day hit you, 
and you don't have any more activity. You're trying to go to sleep and that, that reel starts to play in your head. You should weep. Christians should be weepy. I shouldn't be the only guy with a Kleenex today. You should be people who see. And if you see, how can you not, how can you not be affected? Well, if you are weeping now, <laughs> Jesus says you will laugh. There's joy to come. How does this work? Well, it kind of depends on your philosophy, kids. Listen, if your philosophy puts joy on the outside, you can have despair on the inside. If your philosophy admits to the despair on the outside, you can also enjoy joy on the inside. What do I mean by that? Well, a popular worldview that we see in our world is what we call secularism. It's the idea that everything that you see, the physical is what is, the spiritual is just a fairy tale. It's an idea. It's a, it's a beautiful thought experiment, but it can't be real. It's imaginative, like the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. It's, it sounds great. Santa Claus is not imagined. I'm sorry, I don't know. Ah. <laughs> All right, whatever. All right, it's, it's uh, imaginative, like the Easter Bunny. Is that also bad? I don't know. All right. So they say because those things are, are, are not physical, because we can't put them under a microscope, because we can't put a thermometer in Santa Claus's mouth, that, that it's not true. And if you say that, you also say that death is death, that death is the end. Okay, if you say that and you live for this world, it's possible to amass a pretty nice life. It's possible to work really hard. It's possibly slightly ruthless, maybe, but I don't think you have to cast it in that light. I think a lot of secular people work really hard and have a lot of integrity. I don't know why they have integrity if they don't think there's another world, but if they choose to, great. And it's possible that if you live like that and work like that, that you can enjoy your life now, that you can fill your life with several pleasures. The pleasures of the table, the pleasures of work, the pleasures of pleasurable company, whether that's men or women, lots or just one. It's possible that you can experience a lot of joy that's on the outside of your life, but your worldview says that ultimately this will all end in despair. This will all end by you just going back to grass. Contrast that with the Christian. Contrast that with what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that you're going to actually have a pretty difficult time right now. That you're going to give what you have so that others can hear. That you're going you're to fast sometimes. You're going to be hungry sometimes. And you're probably even going to put yourself into a delicate position which may end up in you not having enough food to eat. You're going to be less than now. And your world right now might be filled with a lot of weeping on the outside. But on the inside, when you think about what shall be on the inside, when you realize that the king is on his throne and he looks on you with favor, that he has put his name on you and declared his steadfast love over you, on the inside, you're leaping for joy. You just got to make your choice on this, kids. Here's what G.K. Chesterton does such a beautiful job of talking about this. He said, when rationalists, mean secularists, say that the ancient world was more enlightened than the Christian, ancient meaning like classical period, was more enlightened than the Christian, from their point of view, they're right. For when they say enlightened, 
They really mean darkened with incurable despair. Do you see how Jesus is talking about this? Do you see how Chesterton is saying the same but the opposite? If you keep reading Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6, he goes from the blesseds to the woes. We don't get the woes the same way in Matthew. In Luke, he says, blessed are the blessed are the blessed. And then he says, woe to the. And the woes are to those that are the opposite. You can make a choice here and you actually have to choose. Jesus is telling you that the world's upside down and his ministry has come to make it right side up. But the right side up way of living sees this world as a broken place and works desperately to change that as well as we can until the day when the Lord makes everything right. You have to choose where you're going to stand. The crowds came to hear Jesus speak, but he spoke to his disciples. Matthew and Luke both make that clear, that there are a crowd of people, but Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to those that have already committed. And as he's speaking to those that have already committed, he's making it clear that they're going to have to choose. They can choose to be healed. They can choose to have their life look wonderful. But if they do, they're giving up on something to come. Or they can choose the Jesus who is being opposed. They can choose the Jesus who the Pharisees want to kill and the crowds walk away from. They can choose, verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Are you there yet? I don't know. I read a blog this week from a young couple that is going to do ministry. They're going to join in with kingdom work in the nation of India, and they're from America. And their names are very important, but I'm not going to use them because it's not really the point. (laughs) The point isn't that that they uh, are unique. The point is that what they're doing is very commonplace Christianity. It's things that are happening all the time as brothers and sisters feel the need for many to hear the gospel and respond to it. And so they give up what they have now in order to work for what will be. And this lovely, you can think, we have so many of these young families at Hope Church. Just imagine, it's a young wife, young husband, and a young, young baby. And they're leaving and they're flying to India to join kingdom work there. And she titled the blog, Hit the Ground Running dot, 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 and the ground hit back. (laughs) She said, but the Lord is certainly doing something in us. Every time we say, this is all I've got, please don't ask anymore. He does in kindness and with our good and his glory in mind. It's a humbling and and a stretching that we are learning how to welcome rather than resist That's really poetic. I hope that you're following what she's saying there. But I'll tell you, we're tired. Please pray for resolve and for grace to be poured into our souls so that it pours out of us in the hard moments towards one another, towards their son, and towards the masses of people that they interact with every day. We love and miss you all dearly. I don't know if you understand that. If you're a Christian, I think that you begin to. If you tell people about Jesus and experience rejection, I think that you begin to. 
If you see a world that needs change and you start sacrificing things that you would have done in order to bring about that change, I think you start to. I want to be really careful here. I am not saying that those people that went to India or the disciples are saved because they suffer. They're not. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's speaking to them about the kingdom because they are already part of the kingdom. The ESV Study Bible, I would encourage you, this is such a great one-volume way to understand the Bible better. The ESV Study Bible talks about it. It says, the Beatitudes are not conditions for entering the kingdom of God, but blessings pronounced on those who have already entered. He says that if you show mercy, you're blessed because you're going to receive mercy. And in our legalistic brains, we say, oh, okay, so if you don't show mercy, then it must mean. So so then you, you can only go to heaven if you show mercy, which must mean that it's only those that have earned it through their mercy that are allowed into heaven. But it's not. It's exactly the opposite. The kingdom of God says that you show mercy because he has first shown mercy to you. Jesus told a parable about an unforgiving servant. The idea was the king forgave the servant of an unimaginable debt. And then he went out, the servant went out from that forgiveness, saw somebody who owed him a debt. And instead of forgiving that person, insisted they pay it back. The king heard about it and then insisted that that servant pay his whole debt. Why? He said, I showed you mercy, and would you not show mercy to another? It was indicating that he had not really received, not really understood the mercy that the the king gave to him. When we say these Beatitudes, you are receiving these things because you have trusted in Jesus' teaching. You've trusted him as your Savior and your Lord. So this morning, let me ask you, is that you? I'm trying to give you a very clear picture of the heaven and the hell that the Bible talks about. The Bible is really clear that you can choose him now. And if you do, your life is going to be difficult, but your forever is going to be bliss. But the Bible is also clear that you can reject him now and you can have the pleasures that he forbids now. But on that day, you'll be separated from him You'll be separated from life and light and pleasure forever. That's what the Bible calls hell. Who have you chosen? <laughs> Who is your, is your Lord? Is it a version of Jesus that still lets you do whatever you want? Well, that's not the Jesus that I see described here. Or are you not like the crowds, but like the disciples who choose this Jesus, even though it means suffering now? in view of great joy to come. What we're about to do is a baptism. And when you see a baptism, you see a person who is undergoing a physical experience to express a spiritual reality. That person is going to go under the water. They're going to die. But then they come back up. Can I tell you, that's Christianity. You're going to choose him. You're going to choose to go die with him. But if you do, if you choose him, even though it means he's your Lord, even though it means a little bit of dying, it may just be the dying of fasting, but it may be the dying of martyrdom, and you go down with him, what happens? You come gloriously back to life in the view of that resurrection. Do you feel joy? Oh, I hope that you will. I hope that you do. If not... 
can you choose today? Fasting is a great way to start. You don't have to sell everything and move to India. It'd be great if you did, but you don't have to start there. Let's just start with a little bit of fasting. Say no to lunch one day a week so that you can instead pray for the kingdom to come. You've never done that before? Talk to somebody about it. Let's figure it out together. A lot of us don't do it regularly. Great, let's work on it. Let's figure it out together. But if you've not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then that's really where we need to start today. And again, we would just ask, would you be humble enough to speak to someone about it? I pray that you would. We're going to watch a testimony video as I pray. Then we'll do a baptism and then we'll sing and be dismissed. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, please bless your people with an understanding of your gospel. Not some version of it that sounds great to us, but allows us to just do whatever we want. Not some version of it, Father, that sounds really difficult to us, but also somehow leaves room for us to feel pride because we, we showed mercy and so you're going to show us mercy. Lord, no. Will you give us the true gospel that says Jesus died, that we as sinners can be forgiven. We can be adopted. Father, we love you and we pray that the, the visual of this baptism, the testimony that she speaks would speak the gospel to our hearts that we might understand it, we might accept it, and we might tell the whole world about it. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in your son's holy name.